This morning, we're continuing a series that is really purposed to encourage us in the work of ministry that God is doing in us and through us. The series has been emphasizing redeeming broken things, seeing God at work in us to restore the ruins that sin has destroyed in each of us and in the world in which we live. In week one, we talked about the biblical worldview that everything is broken. Everything around us is not the way it's supposed to be, but that God, through His Word and Spirit, has power to redeem broken things and to redeem broken people. And so he looked at a doctrine of vocation, a doctrine of work, that work is broken in this world, but it can be redeemed to the glory of God. And then we looked at the doctrine of rest and even Sabbath rest. Those things are broken in our lives, but they can be redeemed. They can be made right for the glory of God. And then last week, we began to look at broken relationships. And in particular, we talked about marriage and the family. Very broken things in our culture, in our world, in all of our lives. And we saw the hope of the gospel that broken families, broken marriages can be redeemed. They can be renewed. There is great hope in the gospel for families and for marriages. And now this this morning, we're going to continue that theme of redeeming broken relationships. But in the way of application, we're going to look at what the Scriptures say as it would apply to friendships and community. That there are broken friendships that need to be redeemed. And the power of the gospel is present to redeem those in the lives of Christians. And there are broken communities And those can be redeemed. The friendship, the fellowship, the community of God's people really does matter to God. And we'll see a number of passages this morning. Our first two are both from the Psalms, but we have many more passages we'll consider. But let's begin with Psalm 133 and then from Psalm 122. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And then from Psalm 122, verses 6 to 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Let's pray together. Lord, would you be not only our teacher this morning, but would you encourage us with the hope of the gospel that broken relationships really can be redeemed and that you prioritize it for us. So, Lord, on a sensitive subject, we pray that you would be present and that you, Lord, would bring hope to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there really are a lot of passages and a lot of things I hope to share with you this morning. um, But I'm reminding myself I need to work quickly. 
this week I came across uh, several things of interest to me on this subject, but one of them came from an unexpected source. I received um, a study from the Presbyterian Church in America. It was a study they conducted, uh, the Geneva Benefits Group did it, on the well-being of pastors. And so I read that with some interest, but a quotation from there that spoke directly to this subject, not just for me, but for all of us, was this. It says, relationships are critical to our wellness, spiritually and emotionally. Humans thrive when they experience relationships grounded in mutual trust. And I don't think that's an overstatement. I think that's true. You, from your own experience, know that relationships can make everything better. And relationships can make everything worse. And so this is a critical subject. If you're a believer in Jesus, God has much to say to us about the relationships in our lives and that they be healthy and that if they are broken, that they be redeemed. So three simple points, and if you've picked up on a pattern here, every week is speaking about creation and the order that God intended, and then the ruin of the fall, the doctrine of sin, but then the hope that we have for redemption in Jesus. So creation, fall, and redemption. And that, in a nutshell, is our biblical world and life view. But beginning with creation... We were made for deep, meaningful, reciprocal relationships. That's what we were made for. Created in the image of God. We're made for deep, meaningful, reciprocal relationships. But that's not what most of us experience. Not in the ways of friendship and community. Charles Spurgeon said this, He says, when you find a good friend, when you find such a man as a good friend, and you prove the sincerity of his friendship, when he has been faithful to you, he says, grapple him to thyself with hooks of steel and never let him go. That's Spurgeon's way of saying it is hard to find a good, healthy friendship. And when you do find one, protect it. Hold on to it. Now, there is no no greater friendship than marriage. We believe that to be true. And everything that I'm saying, though I'm targeting friendships and community, everything applies to the family as the ultimate friendship as well. But you've got to protect healthy friendships. They are rare. But when you find one, hold fast and don't let Satan the vandal vandalize that friendship, that fellowship, or that community. Because that's exactly what happened. We know from Genesis, the story we've returned to week after week. The fall into sin ruined our first parents. It ruined us as a consequence. And it ruined the peace, the shalom, of all human relationships. Every one of us and every one of our relationships Shalom is threatened because of our own sin and because of the sin of others. Satan, the vandal who vandalizes, has vandalized all human 
relationships. And as we've said each week, the result of his vandalism is now conflict and chaos instead of shalom. And that's true within the church. That's true outside of the church. But it's not the way it was supposed to be. But now in our life, we know conflict everywhere between people and between things. Dogs and cats can't get along. There's always been the Hatfields and the McCoys, the blue and the gray, red states and blue states, football fans and soccer fans. We'll divide and conflict over anything, right? That is who we are at our core and at our heart. That is what sin has done. It has made us prioritize our differences and we don't want to budge. We don't want to give or take because sin has affected us and all of our relationships. Because of sin, every one of us now is quick to misread other people, to miscommunicate with other people, to misunderstand other people, to assume the worst possible intention or motives that other people have. We're inclined to do that. We're quick to feel victimized, to feel judged, to feel rejected. It's just in us. That's the human sinful heart. And Scripture speaks to it. The Proverbs in particular, a number of Proverbs speak to that tendency in the fallen sinful heart. Proverbs 16, verse 28. A perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 17. One who forgives an affront fosters friendship, but one who dwells on disputes will alienate a friend. And we'll do that. We'll dwell will circle and spiral on something somebody said, the way they looked at me. They weren't interested in the story I was telling. And we'll churn on that, and a dispute will come from our heart, and it can start to separate what was friend a friendship, what were friends. Proverbs 26. Without wood, a fire goes out. And without a gossip... A quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. And so the Proverbs speak directly to all of our hearts. It is in us because sin is in us and it will ruin our relationships. It will undo us, our friendships, our fellowship, in our community. We can be easily divided from one another, even within the church. Three things I'd like for you to think about. And if you go to lunch, if you have lunch together, these would be three things I think worthy of talking about over lunch today. How are we divided from others? Well, typically, the anatomy of how sin works in the human heart and in destroying relationships, it tends to begin with Fisher that leads to fracture, that leads to feud. A fissure, you know, is a narrow crack or a separation of parts. Something happens where there's a, a slight crack. A fissure begins to form between two persons or two parties. 
and you put a little pressure on that fissure, on that crack, and now you've got fracture. You've got a complete breaking of the relationship. And it's us versus them. That's how it tends to play out. And now that there's fracture, it boils into a feud. And one person goes and seeks to galvanize the troops against the other person. And the other person will do the same and try to galvanize the troops against the other person. And that's what the sinful human heart does. And we'll use email, we'll use text messages, we'll use social media to gather the troops, to make our point, to do whatever we can with that inner war in the sinful heart. It's in us, it's in every one of us, and it threatens to ruin every relationship that we humanly know. Nobody taught us how to quarrel. Nobody told us how to feud. It's in us because of our first parents and their rebellion against God. You may have seen, like me, a YouTube video of five-year-old kindergartners in a classroom who break out into the most hilarious dispute that, for me, summarizes the human heart pretty well. So there's a, there's a five-year-old boy, and it looks to be two twin girls, five years old. And it's posted on YouTube, and it's, it's pretty funny, but it's pretty indicative of the heart. They break out in a feud because the boy says, it's sprinkling. And the girl says, no, it's raining. And then the boy says, no, my mom said it's sprinkling. And the girl says, no, my mom said it's raining. And they go back and forth for about a minute and a half. It's sprinkling. It's raining. It's sprinkling. It's raining. Until finally the girl pokes him in his chest. And he says with a broken voice, you poked my heart. And you would think that would have just melted the girl, but it didn't. And then he says to her, his response is, you're pretty. And you're not real. And I don't know what that means in a five-year-old mind, but he says, he praises her, you're pretty and you're not real. And there's just this divide. They cannot agree as to whether it's sprinkling or raining. But my mama said the one, and the other mama said the other, and they were saying the same thing. But they will dispute and they will conflict because that's the human nature. When I was 12 or 13 years old, there was a dispute in our family, in our house. I vaguely remember it, but what I do remember is that my mother and my only sister, she's five years older than me, they didn't speak to each other for six months. Six months of living together and not being able to talk to one another. I wasn't able to reach her this week to find out how it ended. I wish I had that to share with you. It did end. The conflict ended. But the two women in our house would not talk to each other. That's the sinful human heart, and it's in every single one of us. So whether it's a five-year-old kindergartner, whether or not it's a teenage girl and a middle-aged mom, 
The scriptures tell us, beware your sinful human heart. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told to beware the root of bitterness. Our hearts will turn bitter towards those that we are angry at, those that we're in conflict with. And Hebrews 12 says, beware the root of bitterness because it grows deeply into the sinful heart. Elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told to beware giving the devil a foothold, giving him the opportunity to grasp us and control us and to do it with anger. That's where we're told to not let the sun go down on your anger. You will be giving the devil a foothold if you do that. But you know, it's just hard to reconcile, isn't it? It's just hard to. Do you remember the four hardest things to say in the English language? I think I've shared this with you before. The four hardest things to say in the English language. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I love you. And the fourth, Worcestershire sauce. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I love you. Why are those things so hard for us to say? So a five-year-old kindergartner, a teenage girl, and a middle-aged mom, how about let's go back in church history to some of our heroes and their conflicts. You know the name John Wesley and George Whitfield. In the 1700s, during the Great Awakening, these were two giant preachers, we would say. Um, Their ministry to the colonies led to a revival called the Great Awakening, where thousands were converted by each of these two ministers. These two men had been close friends while studying together at Oxford. But their theological differences became front and center. George Whitfield was a Calvinist. John Wesley was an Arminian. No time to explain that, just but to say distinctive theological differences on the doctrine of salvation, predestination, and how God is at work in the world. Wesley first began to preach against predestination, and Whitfield's response to him was to say, Why dispute with me? I'm willing to go with you to prison and to death, but I'm not willing to oppose you. And the response that Wesley had to what seemed like a very gracious and and courteous uh, Whitfield was to go over onto Whitfield's turf and begin to teach and write anti-predestination Calvinistic pamphlets and material and to spread that in a way that affected Whitfield's ministry. Well, Whitfield didn't like that at all. And this began the beginning of a dispute where both men would preach and write against the other man's ministries. They had methodological differences also. Um, They disagreed uh, over matters of revival and how to respond sincerely to the gospel. It was an ugly dispute by two men of God, two pastors who were committed to preaching Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sin. 
Now pause that illustration. We're going to come back to that. That's part one of a dispute between two good and godly men. It doesn't matter if it's pre-K, if it's teenagers, middle-aged, old men, old women. Our hearts are prone towards conflict, towards sin, towards broken relationships with one another. And it all begins when one person or both people do something a sin of omission or a sin of commission. It may be something they did or something that they didn't do. But that little fissure begins. And the fissure grows to a fracture. And once fractured, people now pull apart from each other. And you know this in your own experience of conflict. Somebody upsets you and you don't want to see them. You're going to give them the silent treatment. You're going to withdraw. You may even change the pattern of your foot traffic so that you don't have to see that person at work or see that person at home or see that person in town. That's what happens to the sinful human heart. It starts to withdraw from the other person. Separation occurs, awkwardness is felt, and then alienation and isolation are the result. And every one of us has had that experience, maybe with the people we love the most. And maybe it only lasted a few hours or a few days. But every one of us knows that feeling and how wrong it is. Chris Braun says, Life is all about relationships. In a fallen world, relationships are easily damaged and broken. What we believe and practice about forgiveness will determine whether or not we can move forward for God's glory and for our own joy. And isn't that true? Your posture towards forgiveness and reconciliation has everything to do with whether or not you're going to glorify God in your relationships and whether or not you're going to enjoy your life in relationships with other people. So it really does matter. And the hope that we have is that God is the redeemer of broken relationships. God is redeeming a broken people to Himself, and He says that He empowers them to redeem their broken relationships with one another. And He does it for all the world to see that the church would be different than the world, that reconciliation of broken relationships is experienced in His church in a way that the world will marvel over the depth of community, the depth of fellowship and relationship that God's people enjoy together. In John chapter 17, that's exactly what Jesus prayed for in His high priestly prayer. What he prayed for his disciples and all who would one day follow him. Let me remind you what that says from John 17. Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays and Jesus teaches through that prayer that it's the unity of the body that testifies to the world that he is real and that he is true. Can you say that of your relationships and the redemption of them? Or when you look over your shoulder, is it a train wreck of broken relationships? At work, at school, at play? Are you a person of conflict characterized by destruction of relationships or by God's grace? Are you or can you be one who seeks to redeem broken relationships? Because of Jesus' prayer for His church, His desire for His church, His work for His church. In Ephesians chapter 2, similarly, we're told this, Christ Himself is our peace, and He has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Christ's purpose, was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Do you hear that? This has everything to do with the gospel. Our relationships, the redemption of them, the reconciliation of broken relationships has everything to do with modeling and imaging God to a broken world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're actually told you would be better off to be wronged personally than to be in conflict to go to court against another Christian because your conflict with your brother or sister is embarrassing to the Lord and to the church is essentially what he says. We should so value the modeling and imaging of the truth of Christ and His gospel, that we would rather be wronged than be in conflict with another person. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told what I mentioned earlier, don't even let the sun go down at the end of a day and have anger in your heart towards another Christian, towards another person. Serious language throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. God has always called His people to be united, to be unified, to be one. So what hope do we have if our friendships are broken, if our community is broken, or if we feel isolated and estranged from community? Well, here's the big idea. Here's the takeaway for our sermon this morning. It is God's way of reconciliation. He has showed us the way of reconciliation, and it is the way of sacrifice. Now, this is the hard part because every one of us is called on to apply this, but here is the way of reconciliation as the Bible describes it. First, someone in the divided party has to take initiative, they have to approach the other. 
which would require, number two, laying down their life for their friend. Laying down their pride, laying down their anger, laying down their grudge for the sake of the other. Sacrificing it on an altar themselves. And when that is done, brothers and sisters, if someone should come to you and seek reconciliation, if you're a believer in Jesus, you must receive and respond to the one who has approached you. That's the way of reconciliation. And that's what's modeled in Scripture. Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives a parable that teaches this simply and beautifully. You know it as the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the son has abandoned his father, taking his possessions for himself, his inheritance. He is in a state of ruin. The relationship with his father is broken. It's ruined. And that son comes to his senses once all of the wealth is spent. And he determines internally, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, so he's taking the initiative, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. And so he determined to get up and to go and do this to his father. But the father responds with grace and mercy as the gospel would have a father do. It says, the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Do you hear it? That's the story of reconciliation. That's the story of the gospel. That God calls us to confess our sin. And He promises. He is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins when we confess them to Him. That is the way of reconciliation. But the beauty of the gospel and the story of sacrifice is that God Himself would be the sacrifice for reconciliation. He would put Himself on the altar. He would be put to death and be raised again that human relationships with Him might be redeemed, that they might be restored. Tim Keller says on this subject of forgiveness, forgiveness is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. True forgiveness comes at a cost, and it is always to be pursued by believers. I think he's right. It is a priority in Christ's church that relationships be redeemed, be restored, be kept healthy, be kept good from the way God perceives them because they testify to who God is as the world watches the world characterized by broken and hurting relationships, and they're to see something different in us. In Romans chapter 14, we're told to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to the mutual edification of others. It's a priority. 
And then in Hebrews 12, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. And then in Colossians chapter 3, we're told, forgive others just as the Lord has forgiven you. God is the great redeemer of broken people and broken relationships. But he calls his people to be a people who redeem broken relationships. We don't just let them go. They're to be restored and renewed and redeemed. So what about John Wesley and George Whitfield? What came of those men and their conflict? Well, there's a second half to the story, and I'll leave you with this. It says they never came to terms over their theological differences, but they eventually did learn to respect each other. One of Whitfield's followers, who had great animosity towards Wesley himself, once said to George Whitfield about John Wesley, we won't see John Wesley in the heaven, will we? But Whitfield humbly replied, yes, you're right. We won't see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. Oh, he could have piled on. He could have said what would have been a great zinger, but he said no. Wesley knows Jesus and he's a good and faithful man. Though we have disagreements, he knows Jesus. At one point, John Wesley appeared to be close to death. And Whitfield wrote to him, thinking that he was dying, and said, A radiant throne awaits you, and ere long you will enter into your master's joy. Yonder he stands with a massive crown, ready to put it on your head amidst an admiring throng of saints and angels, honoring the man who had been an opponent, but treating him like a dear brother. Interestingly, Wesley would not die. He would recover and get healthy. And it would be Whitfield who died first. And at Whitfield's request, Wesley preached at three memorial services held for Whitfield in London. And Wesley spoke lovingly and respectfully of Whitfield in all that he said. Redeeming broken relationships. It's possible. Honoring the Lord by loving one another. I don't know the relationships you have. I just know that you're a sinner like I am. And they're probably broken. Might be fissure. Could be fractured. Could be alienation, isolation, separation. There is hope for broken relationships. If your faith is in Jesus, there is great hope. So let the Lord press on you that hope and your willingness to apply the gospel to all of your relationships. Let's pray and then let's sing. Lord, none of us escapes the call to redeem broken relationships when our faith is in Jesus. So Lord, would you bring courage of heart, willingness to initiate, to step forward by faith, to honor you and to rightly demonstrate the world to the world how the church is not like the world in this way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.